When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes the news, as well as insight and analysis on all the big topics dominating football that you are talking about as well. Now, today is Wednesday's podcast, which means it's your questions answered, and of course also means the return of the infamous Donkey Awards, and we've got a very special one for you, so listen out for that near the end of the pod. We've had lots of questions from you guys, so I'm not going to go through them all about Paul Pogba's future after his seemingly rather untimely comments in the wake of the 4-0 victory over Chelsea in the opening day of their Premier League campaign. Now, my information is that his move proposed to Real Madrid is receding. Um, It seems less likely that Manchester United would sell for any price. And this has been, uh, I guess you could say, underlined by the fact that uh, our information here at the transfer window is that uh, Real Madrid have now contacted the representatives of Christian Eriksen to discover just how enthusiastic, how, um, I guess, uh, detailed and how positive he would be about forcing his way out of Tottenham. Because what we know is, of course, with the transfer window closed in the Premier League and in England, Tottenham now can't recruit a replacement for Eriksen. Ericsson is one year out of contract. Uh, he made it clear and in doing so upset Mauricio Pochettino in the summer that he wanted a new challenge, in his words, with regards to his career. Um, we all know about the problems with Tottenham's wage structure and the way that they will not pay uh, the kind of wages that are commonplace at other top four clubs. And Ericsson clearly is interested in a move to what would be the most you know, potentially the most glamorous club in the world, as it's usually called. Certainly the wages would be twice his current salary, which is around about £80,000 a week, probably more than that. Um, So financially, his um, desires would be certainly met by moving to the Santiago Bernabeu. Um, It's also the case that Ericsson himself uh, is still keen to leave. Now, what would be interesting about this one is that, uh, of course, Daniel Levy likes to... um, let's just say take these things to the final day and in this case September the 2nd is the final day in the European transfer window and we'll obviously try to get between I would reckon between 16 and 18 million euros for a 27 year old who has said is one year left in his contract that would seem expensive but nowhere near the 150 million that uh, was being bandied around for Paul Pogba who would that leave Paul Pogba that's another thing as well because Pogba clearly isn't 100% happy at Manchester United regardless um, of you know early season victory. So that's something which we have to consider. But Duncan, I think this is also interesting because it would be a win, I think, for coach Zinedine Zidane. We spoke on the podcast before about it being Florentino Perez's um, wish to bring Neymar to the club. 
Uh, and of course, they wouldn't buy Neymar and Pogba, stroke Ericsson. Um, but Zidane feels like a creative midfielder is something crucial to his campaign going forward. And also, I think we should flag up that Modric um, in the twilight of his career, you, you, should, you could say Tony Cruz as well, who plays in that double pivot for Real Madrid, um, also uh, a waning talent. Whereas Mo, um, Ericsson's coming to the prime of his career, I think personally, he'd be perfect for, for Madrid. I think this highlights the indecision and the mess at, at Real Madrid at present. We've told you about the conflict between Zidane and um, Florentino Perez. Told you that Florentino Perez is pushing hard to uh, get Neymar finally to the club, a player he's pursued for years and years and years. He sees the opportunity because Paris Saint-Germain would prefer to sell to Madrid than sell to Barcelona um, and has been working down that line. Um, Pogba clearly wants to go to Madrid, even though the English transfer window is closed and Manchester United have been working on the basis that he stays and they won't sell the player. Pogba brought that issue up um, again immediately after United's first game of the season, a very strong 4-0 win in which he received a lot of plaudits. Um, he clearly thinks there's a possibility that Madrid will, will come in again for him, which is interesting and perhaps perhaps is not entirely irrational, given that Madrid aren't in a very uh, coherent, rational shape about what they're doing in the transfer window at present. Um, it also makes sense in those circumstances for them to contact Ericsson, um, because he is far more available um, with that single year of contract, with those issues between him and uh, Pochettino, which uh, I, I've had confirmed from a friend of his, speaking to a friend of his this morning, that there's, there's been... That, Ericsson is not particularly happy with Pochettino at the moment because of conflict there's been in pre-season. Um, and then you kind of pull on the lever of Daniel Leverage and say, we, we, we are prepared to make that offer, um, meet the, the financial terms you expect for a player that you're going to lose for nothing in a year's time. Will you take that? Um, certainly far more accessible than Pogba. Possibly more accessible than Donny van de Beek, who's another um, individual who's who's in this equation. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Ajax were very close, felt they were very close to coming to an agreement with Real Madrid on a transfer fee for van de Beek. That wasn't completed. Van de Beek's talked about that publicly. Um, it's still very much in play. Latest I have on that is that Mark Overmars, um, Ajax's sporting director, is working to ensure that Van de Beek remains at the club for one more year. But I think there is an element of that work is, uh, is designed a, a, around increasing the, the transfer fee take Ajax get for the player down the line, be that in a year or be that this summer, where Ajax are you know, very aware of what's going on at Madrid, aware of their interest in the player, aware that they, they need, they're probably going to need to take at least one uh, big signing in before the start of the uh, before the end of the, the European transfer window um, to satiate the fans and to, to try and dampen some of the negativity around the club. And um, it could be the time to exploit that for him. So I think that the, the situation is very um, fluid at present. And, uh, you know, as we've, as we've said in the podcast for several weeks, Neymar's kind of driving is at the, at the centre of all of this and wh where he will end up. Um, Assuming he gets that move out of Paris, which does look likely because uh, PSG are prepared to sell if the numbers are right for them, 
Does he end up at Barcelona? Does he end up at Madrid? And then what happens around him in terms of players being moved out from those two clubs to make room in the salary cap and the wage bill and in the squad for Neymar? And, um, and what happens in terms of alternative signings for those two clubs if they, for, for whichever one, um, doesn't end up taking the player? And also the case, Duncan, that since um, Ericsson declared his desire to move on, um, it has been suggested to me that Pochettino has been um, effectively facing him out of his plans on the expectation that he won't be available for the uh, majority of the season. Interesting, of course, that he was on the bench uh, for the opening game against Aston Villa last weekend. It came on as a substitute uh, on 64 minutes for Harry Winks. You said uh, all along that you believe Pochettino's plan was to build a midfield with Winks and two infielders around him and that Winks would be a major player for Tottenham this season. Obviously, the recruitment of Lo Celso and Lona and Ndombele uh, as their record signing suggests that indeed, despite the fact they missed out on Bruno Fernandes and a third midfielder that, that Pochettino would have preferred, it may well be the case that Pochettino will effectively um, assuage to the notion that uh, that Levy will probably push on that as well, that we should sell him because we will profit enormously for a player who would only otherwise run down his contract. And we do have enough uh, in, in stock here to get by this season. I think a coach's view of that is always, I want more players, not less. And obviously Ericsson is a particularly gifted player and one who um, has been crucial in the last two seasons to Tottenham's um, ability to both score and assist goals. It will be interesting, um, but I, I just can't get out of my mind something you said in, in that answer, which was Daniel's lever. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to think about that, do they? <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think we should leave the Ericsson conversation with that image um, for all of you out there. Please, um, you know, continue that conversation as you wish, but just don't bring me in it, okay? Um, again, well, lots of... Go let, on. Let's, let's just talk about Pochettino's view of the situation, um, which is that he, as, we, as I've explained on the podcast for some time now, they went into this window with the idea that Harry Winks would be the, the number six in the midfield and there would be two top quality central midfielders coming in. They got Tangi on, on the belly. He straightened the team. He showed his quality already for them. Bruno Fernandes was the player. They went furthest down the line for that other position. They didn't end up getting him for reasons we've explained in detail um, to do with Sporting's political situation, but mainly uh, Bruno's uh, brother-in-law agent who um, misled Tottenham on what the, the, the buying price would be. They got the number 10 that Pochettino wanted in Lo Celso. They didn't get the addition to the forward line that Pochettino wanted. And we also broke the, the news about Paolo Dybala and where that went and how it went wrong um, on the explained in, in the last two podcasts. Um, I think if you look at it from Pochettino's perspective, he was clearly expecting Ericsson to go in the summer and was planning replacements. He hasn't got all those replacements in. So now he has a squad where he has um, you know, a very strong addition in Ndombele, a very strong addition in Lo Celso. But um, Saturday, I guess, demonstrated that Ericsson is still very important to the team. He's still one of the best players in that squad. 
So from Pochettino's perspective, and I think you can see this in his press conference comments about being worried about what happens for the last three weeks of the window when he can no longer buy, but other clubs can take teams from him. His perspective is keep Ericsson for this season because I am going to have a stronger squad to work with with Christian Ericsson in it. And I think his perspective is also keep Danny Rose. Um, so he'd like to retain the players he knows and can rely on and knows their qualities. Um, however, he now is now dependent on Daniel Levy, Daniel Levy supporting him in that preference and um, going against his normal pattern, which is when money is available for a player heading towards his 30s, Ericsson's not, not nowhere near 30 yet, but he's in that direction. He's in that sale trigger area that Daniel Levy has. And you, you, you only have a year of contract left. You have no guarantee that you might not lose him um, in a year's time for nothing. Normally, Levy sells in that situation. If he does, Tottenham will have a weaker squad for the season. Their chances of winning trophies will be lower. So you can see why Pochettino's argument will be keep him. And uh, also you have the perspective that you've explained that Ericsson wants to go. He potentially has this opportunity to go to one of the biggest clubs in the world on a huge pay rise. Um, so it's, uh, it's going to be a difficult and interesting situation uh, to see how it's managed by all the parties. And I think it's got significant repercussions for that Pochettino-Levy relationship uh, in the medium to longer term. I think it's right to point out what um, Pochino said after um, the game against Aston Villa regarding the transfer window and how the Premier League handicaps itself. Uh, easy to interpret that, I think, as a, a sort of warning to Levy that um, I'm not prepared to lose any more players. So, you know, please don't go um, pulling your lever, which opens the, uh, the, the doors uh, to a exit from Naming Rights Stadium, as you like to call it, Duncan. Um, now, moving on, uh, the biggest transfer saga of the summer, um, well, probably the last year as well, given his behaviour, is that of Neymar and Paris Saint-Germain. Um, we've had lots of questions from you guys and we're very, very pleased that we can bring you the very latest news on this. Um, Duncan, uh, Barcelona representatives arrived in Paris yesterday, that is on Tuesday of this week, to open negotiations for uh, the wayward Brazil superstar. Um, I'm told from sources uh, close to someone who was in that meeting that it didn't go very well. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, um, the Barcelona uh, delegation were surprised given um, PSG's public uh, acknowledgement that it would be better for the club and the player if he moved on, with the hardball that was being played in terms of the negotiation. But you also have an update, Duncan, I believe, on where things might go in day two of these talks. Yeah, well, I mean, talking about transfer sagas and Neymar, you could argue that Neymar's entire career has been one long transfer saga and... Um, we're just uh, we're just another chapter in his um, telenovela, um, very popular in in, in Brazil, uh, te televised soap operas. And you wonder if uh, Neymar uh, Pai has has considered uh, selling the rights to his transfer negotiations to um, Globo or one of the other major Brazilian TV channels. I, I suspect Neymar has actually been marketing his own granny at some point during his life. But anyway, that's just you know an interpretation of his love for 
pies or money. <laughs> so what, what what I heard on the process yesterday, I believe it was um, in a hotel in Paris. Um, Paris Saint-Germain usually hold these negotiations in the Hotel Molitor. Um, Barcelona sent Eric Abidal, Javier Bordas and Andre Cure. Cure is very close to the Neymar camp and was involved in, in bringing him to the club, uh, to Barcelona in the first place from Santos several years ago. Um, the description I have in the meeting was it, was, it began uh, in a very tense fashion with a lot of problems between the two sides. PSG said they valued Neymar at 250 million euros. Um, they wanted Coutinho. Nelson Semedo and the young French centre-back Jean-Claire Todibo um, on loan uh, and, and in addition to 100 million euros uh, as a deal to, to move Neymar to Barcelona. Um, Barcelona were understandably unimpressed and thought that uh, Paris weren't taking them seriously. Um, I'm told they were about to leave the meeting when Leonardo, the sporting director at Paris Saint-Germain, received a phone call and left the room. Um, he came back after 20 minutes uh, with a far more amicable attitude, I'm told. Um, Barcelona, they value, their side of the uh, discussion was that they value Neymar at 200 million euros. Um, they offered a lot of options to Paris Saint-Germain in terms of players that they'd be prepared to involve in that deal. Um, they say that Paris Saint-Germain seemed, appeared to accept Coutinho, who uh, Barcelona value at 110 million euros in that deal, Ivan Rakitic, um, who Barcelona value at 40 million euros, and then, therefore Barcelona would be paying an additional 50 million euros to make that deal happen. PSG said no to the additional 50 million and asked for 100 million. So, the, so the, the, basically the end of the meeting was Barcelona prepared to take, uh, prepared to let Coutinho go to Paris Saint-Germain. Paris Saint-Germain prepared to take Coutinho, which is interesting in that um, I had previously been hearing that Leonardo did not want to take the player. So, so Paris seemed to have uh, flexed their, their position on that. Um, Coutinho, Rakitic and 100 million was Paris Saint-Germain's last position. Barcelona said no more than 50 million plus those two players and the meeting ended and we see where it goes from there. Um, we also have to see what Madrid's response will be to that. Um, as we told you, previous podcasts, Madrid have been very close to agreeing terms on a transfer with Paris Saint-Germain. Um, understand that the offer that Paris liked was 160 million euros plus Luka Modric. Uh, Madrid's problem, obviously, is getting Neymar to agree to come there, as Neymar is insisting that he wants to return to Barcelona and has been working on the club, using Lionel Messi in that process to get Barcelona to agree the deal with uh, PSG, which they appear to be getting closer to, um, but there's still significant separation as of yesterday's meeting in Paris. It looks, Duncan, like this is going to be, it is going to be resolved, I, I do believe, and hearing um, the viewpoints of both camps that it is untenable for uh, Neymar to remain at Paris Saint-Germain for the coming season. Therefore, he will leave, and of course, it will be to Spain. Um, player obviously 
prefers to go back to Barcelona because he's going to feel loved and comfortable there. Whereas he, if he goes to Madrid, then he's got all sorts of potential problems with his Barcelona history, with the fact that he didn't want to go to Madrid. And the Madridista, as we know, are very proud and don't believe that if a player doesn't want to come there first, if it's their second choice, then he shouldn't even be considered. So he would have a hell of a lot of PR work to do if he was to end up at Real Madrid. Problem Barcelona have got, of course, as you've outlined, is that Madrid are offering more cash and Paris Saint-Germain are looking to recoup the whole 224 million euros they paid for Neymar, whether it's uh, in a player plus um, cash deal in terms of the way that uh, the value is made up. Um, it, it's going to take a lot. I think this is one that you know, we probably won't see resolved quickly, um, even in this um, period of negotiation which Barcelona and PSG have entered into. I'd be surprised if we came out uh, with a, a full conclusion this week. I think both sides are being quite um, hard-nosed, as you'd expect, in a negotiation of this magnitude and uh, the transfer of the world's most expensive player um, out of Paris Saint-Germain as well, um, which, of course, as we all know, is a big loss of face for the Qatari owners. However, um, you can get you do get the sense that it will be resolved in Barcelona's favour um, and that eventually, as you called it, Duncan, the conveyor belt of um, different options uh, in terms of players that PSG can take will eventually come to a stop and PSG will choose their, from their pick and mix um, and, and find some kind of way to get Neymar out of their club and get other players in. One thing that is a possibility as well, though, Duncan, I'd love, love to hear your view on it. Um, given FFP and salary cap in Spain and everything else, Neymar to go on loan to Barcelona for a season? Is that an option? It could be structured that way for um, for FFP and, and salary cap reasons. But um, if it is, I would expect it to be the similar to Kylian Mbappe's move from Monaco to PSG, where it's an obligatory option to buy. So you're just trying to shift the money off the book for one year. I think... I think it's, it's, it's still too early to call where this goes. Um, obviously, Neymar's preference is clearly to go to Barcelona, and he's been pushing that line. Um, Paris Saint-Germain are ready to deal if they get the right numbers. The, the clear information I've been getting from Qatar is that their preference is to sell to Madrid. Madrid, Florentino Perez wants the player and wants to stop him going to Barcelona. And I think you've also got to factor in here um, Nepai, uh, what what the father does when the club-to-club agreement is reached. I think there's no guarantee when you're dealing with an individual with the history, track record of the way he's worked in deals and worked with clubs in the past, that uh, once that club-to-club agreement is there, it'll be a straightforward matter of um, concluding the contract with the player. I, you know, I, I don't think it's too much to say that... that um, Neymar's father might try and edge a little extra out of the deal whenever one of those two clubs has got that final agreement with Paris. Well, the good news, of course, for uh, Nepai is that the 30, uh, so the end of July has now passed, which means he's been paid his loyalty bonus uh, on the commission that um, was promised to him for transferring his son to Paris Saint-Germain. And of course, we all know that he tried to sue Barcelona for that same loyalty bonus even after his son had signed for Paris Saint-Germain. So maybe Nepai's um, off building a swimming pool somewhere or likes um, in order to uh, get rid of that cash before his son moves on again. 
Um, we're going to come on to the individual questions now um, that you guys have sent us. And of course, as you know, we're always, always very grateful for receiving them um, because it gives us the chance to debate directly with you. Very, very um, interesting and detailed one here, Duncan, from um, regular listener Samuel Dave. And we've found out since that so means 100. So his um, Twitter handle at 100 mil Dave. Uh, has been explained to us. Of course, mine still hasn't, and I'm keeping that a secret. So this concerns um, the issue of Man City escaping a transfer ban um, for the uh, violations of FIFA rules in terms of underage players. I'm going to read this out, Duncan, and uh, I know that you give us your usual forensic analysis uh, bit by bit. Here we go. So with Man City escaping a transfer ban for their violations in sending underage players, is it something we can expect for their FFP violations as well? The fine itself looks like a joke, and it seems the aggressive posturing from Abu Dhabi has paid off partially. Can you please segregate the two issues? City were facing potential fine stroke ban to tell us a bit more about what to expect with regards to their fight on the financial fair play violations in the coming months. So, Duncan, is it your interpretation that, first of all, uh, City have got off lightly because Chelsea, as we know, were found guilty of um, similar uh, violations of FIFA rules and received a two-window ban. And secondly, I suppose, and what someone wants to know is, um, ha has this aggressive posturing, as he called it, going to work the same trick with UEFA when it comes to the um, FFP issues? I think they've got off lightly. I think that's the general feeling um, in football. Uh, there was an expectation when um, I last season actually that the transfer window ban was going to be handed down and then a uh, we've waited until now for a, a final decision to be communicated by um, FIFA on the matter um, it's the the finest 370,000 Swiss francs which is uh, to put it in context it's a you know it's a fraction of the kind of sums that city are using have been using to pay um, parents of uh, young players uh, to convince them to join Manchester City rather than other clubs. So it, it is nothing to them. Um, I think it's quite interesting the way City um, presented uh, the, the FIFA decision in their own um, statement about it and they described it as a reprimand um, rather than a punishment. Um, and tried to emphasise in the statement that, uh, that it was for the international transfer players under the age of 18, particularly in relation to the trial periods and participation in friendly games. Um, they say that all of the breaches occurred before December 2016, when guidance on interpretations of the provisions was issued, since which date Manchester City has been fully compliant. So they're suggesting that um, they didn't quite understand what they say uh, it arose as a result of misinterpretation of the regulations in question. Um, FIFA issued a statement and a, an explanation of their statement, and they, they kind of highlighted that. Um, that according to the FIFA disciplinary code, FIFA has the ability um, to impose a sanction based on uh, a party, for in this case a club, accepting responsibility and, uh, and making a request to the FIFA judicial bodies to impose a specific sanction. Um, so they're, they're, they're saying that if someone who's broken the rules come to them and admits to breaking the rules, 
then FIFA are allowed to um, kind of downgrade the punishment um, on the basis that uh, the offender has admitted their guilt um, and, uh, and made it easy for, um, for FIFA to discipline them. So that there's obviously been a, a degree of um, negotiation and discussion behind the scenes and, um, and what has come out of it from Manchester City's perspective is a very um, acceptable outcome. So they've gone from uh, the threat of not being able to recruit players um, in one or more upcoming transfer windows to being fined um, just 370,000 Swiss francs for their, their, their previous um, breaches. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, this is the second time in the, in the Guardiola era that City have been caught for um, breaking regulations and uh, got away with very light punishment. So in Guardiola's first season at Manchester City, they were um, caught breaking anti-doping um, regulations uh, on three separate occasions and, uh, and you know, very gently um, punished by uh, the English football authorities for that. And in this case, they've, um, they've been caught for uh, signing overseas players under the age of 18 um, some of those players have gone on record um, to um, Danish newspaper, a couple of them from Ghana have gone on record to talk about the fact that they signed for City and played in youth matches for them under the age of 18. So, the, you know, the case is very clear, but um, the punishment is light. Um, and I think the, the listener asks a, a, you know, a good question, is, can we expect to see this happen again with the other um, cases they have? Now, the UEFA one is completely separate. It's a UEFA case. It's not judged by FIFA. It's on completely different matters. It's financial fair play. So it's the, it's the, um, the expenditure the club is engaged in um, and, uh, and the breach of, of very significant rules, competition rules in the Champions League. Um, it will be decided by UEFA on a separate body of evidence. Um, if you're asking, will they get off lightly? Well, they have a history of it. So they've been caught for financial fair play before um, and they got away with a, a light punishment uh, on the previous occasion. And what the, the football leaks um, evidence uh, has, uh, has demonstrated is that City's tactic when challenged by UEFA um, on that previous occasion was to threaten UEFA with major legal action. Um, you know, they've uh, presented emails in which you have uh, senior city um, employees talking about the idea of um, spending tens of millions of pounds on uh, a legal case that would um, potentially bring down UEFA as a response to being challenged in FFP. And we know that they've been very aggressive in their defence this time. And if you talk to anyone involved at senior levels of European football, they will say that this case, the current case, is kind of a litmus test of, of where UEFA will go because um, they have the opportunity to make an example here. The evidence has been, or a degree of the evidence has been made very public. Um, a lot of competitor clubs are extremely unhappy with the way Manchester City have behaved. The general perception is if UEFA don't act this time, you can forget about financial fair play because it doesn't, it's not going to have an effect on certain clubs if City are excused for what they, 
they did um, with such um, you know, blatant transgressions and such, um, such substantial evidence of those transgressions. Um, but it's a political issue. Uh, and so there is the possibility UFO will back off there. In, in being a political issue, though, Duncan, um, we have both had conversations with um, administrators of top clubs in Europe who have a huge stake in what happens uh, regarding Manchester City's pollution or not. And there is pressure on UEFA's uh, executive committee to not break on this and not to bow to Manchester City by not invoking a serious punishment for what is being a serious transgression of rules. I think in the case of the FIFA ruling, FIFA are not concerned with club football per se. It's easier for them to let City off with a fine, albeit it doesn't look good um, on them. But as they don't actually have any direct um, inter intervention in uh, club football as such, or administration of club football outside of obviously the FIFA World uh, Club Championship, it's an it is an easier decision for FIFA to make to not um, come down hard on City. Although it does look, I think, a bit harsh on Chelsea. Although Chelsea, of course, chose not to appeal the ban and accepted it, whereas City admitted transgressions. So I guess the case FIFA are making as well, City didn't try to fight what they were accused of, but they accepted some of the charges and therefore um, leniency in the way that any justice system works. If you admit uh, your um, collusion in those transgressions, then often, um, whether it's criminal law or even just you know, the slightly less um, serious matter of football regulations, then you will get a, a more um, lenient sentence, or in this case, punishment in terms of a fine. I, I don't see that being the case with UEFA. I don't think UEFA um, will be allowed to be intimidated by Manchester City because they have um, the seriously big members of, uh, in terms of clubs in under their jurisdiction, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United, Liverpool, Bayern Munich, Juventus, to name just a few, who are all saying to UEFA, you cannot allow this to happen because we have complied and some of us have actually had um, fines or uh, punishments in the past for our transgressions. So you cannot allow another nation state owned club to simply get away with um, what are blatant transgressions of FFP rules. And if you do, I think you're right in saying then it's effectively game over for FFP. That's certainly the political pressure. But um, on the other side, uh, uh, Manchester City can exert political pressure and have exerted political pressure. Abu Dhabi has exerted political pressure on UEFA in the past through um, Michel Platini and Nicolas Sarkozy. These things have been, have been detailed. Um, they also are prepared to throw a lot of legal might at it. And it's been suggested that um, a, a uh, comfortable resolution for UEFA would be for City to find some kind of legal loophole in the FFP, um, not so much the regulations, but the um, the uh, uh, the investigation into um, breaches of those regulations and the judicial process of deciding upon those breach of those regulations, um, in the way that Paris Saint Germain uh, recently avoided 
a, a financial fair play penalty for some of their own um, transgressions of, the, of those rules. Okay. Sorry, Duncan, can I just clarify that for the listeners? Are you saying that um, any evidence obtained surreptitiously or by illegal means is not admissible in terms of the punishment uh, meted out? Because that has been the suggestion by City that they were hacked, their emails were hacked, and therefore that evidence is not admissible. Well, City have made that argument. As, as far as I understand, that's not the area um, where uh, UEFA are susceptible. It's more about the timing of investigations and appeals and presentation of documents. And in Paris Saint-Germain's case, they, um, they managed to escape in a technicality over the timing of decision-making. Now, um, I think you can be fairly confident that Manchester City will be looking into every single technicality, every single possible way of having the case thrown out um, on a procedural basis uh, as well as defending themselves in other areas, they've been clear that they, they, they I mean, they've stated that um, the evidence presented is is not a, a proper depiction of their behaviour, and they've said that um, their uh, accounts are a fair presentation of um, their financial stakes, etc., etc., etc. I think that it's clear they'll use any defence possible. What I'm saying is that the suggestion around European football, around people who are are aware of the way UEFA work, aware of the political nature of the organisation, is that it might suit them to be seen to have lost on a technicality, as opposed to um, them having uh, to back down and not and and, uh, and give uh, Manchester City a weaker punishment. So you're, what you're saying is that the pressure on them from other clubs to act is huge, and that is correct. Therefore, if you want a way of avoiding being seen not to have acted by uh, not giving them, not banning them from Champions League, for example, which is what a lot of clubs want to see happen. Um, it might be convenient if a, a procedural error allows City to escape punishment as opposed to a judicial um, decision. Now, I was um, chatting to one of the lawyers very close to um, this case. Uh, I can't say which side they're on. Um, for obvious reasons, but um, it was uh, presented to me that because of the nature and the way the um, accusations, revelations, whatever you want to call them, were made in the public domain through um, Footy Leaks and Der Spiegel, the respected German magazine uh, and newspaper which published them, that City argued that they couldn't get a fair hearing um, because uh, the public and press uh, that would surround this case and that actually brought the case to the attention of UEFA in the first place, presented them as guilty as, and, and charged. Therefore, um, in the way that uh, you can be um, have a, a trial thrown out of a criminal court on the basis that there has been contempt of court or um, a public uh, interpretation of the case as being already decided, then that's how City might get out of this. Um, to summarise, I kind of, you know, what does a state-owned multi-billionaire club have to do to get a break in this place? <laughs> type type <laughs> thing. Um, so uh, that could well be an issue as well. Um, interesting times ahead for Manchester City.
going from Manchester City to Manchester United, and um, we have had lots of um, uh, good uh, positive coverage, obviously, of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team since that 4-0 win against Chelsea in the opening uh, game of their campaign. We've got a great question here, Duncan, from the wonderfully singing sound of Ole Gunnar Sol at Gunnar Sol. I can't help but think there should be some a northern in there somewhere as well, um, who has asked, Duncan Castles, do you reckon this is based or too premature real question? Now, he's referring to a piece on the Manchester United's own website in which they point out the running stats for Manchester United in the game against Chelsea and how they outrun Chelsea. And they have um, emphasised, of course, that Solskjaer, or one of Solskjaer's um, great sort of... Uh, I don't know, his um, railing against the previous regime of Jose Mourinho was that the players weren't fit enough, they didn't run enough, they were being outrun by much lesser teams, etc., etc. And it points out some stats here um, from the Chelsea game suggesting that Solskjaer's methods are working. Now, I'm presuming and I'm hoping that Ole Gunnar Sol is indeed a Manchester United fan because he's asked a fair question, remember? He said, is this biased or too premature? Um, Duncan, you've looked at the stats and obviously you've looked at the piece on the website. What would your reply to our um, singing listener be? Well, um, look at this. I, I, my reply would be look at the stats and, and what's it based on. It's uh, So they're, they're reporting up to data that Manchester United players ran 107.89 kilometres or covered distance of 107.89 kilometres during the game against Chelsea's 106.63 kilometres as evidence that um, Manchester United are fitter than and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's um, strategy of working them hard in pre-season has been proven to be a success. Well, it's just one game. Uh, the difference between the two teams is just 1.26 kilometres or 1.1%. Um, uh, if you break that down, on an average per player, it means that on average, a Manchester United player ran 114 metres more or covered 114 metres more of distance than the Chelsea players in the game, which really isn't very much. Also, um, Chelsea had uh, most of the possession in the game or more of the possession in the game, so 54% of the possession. It's not always the case that the team with less possession runs more, but it's often the case that the team with less possession covers more ground because they're chasing the ball. So um, to take the conclusion from that, that everything has worked on the basis of one game, which, which went in a particular fashion, which uh, Manchester United um, played in the counter in the second half, it does seem somewhat premature uh, to me. Um, I did think that Manchester United looked very fit um, at the start in that game in, in general um, and I don't think it's a surprise as I said on uh, Monday's podcast it's not a surprise if you if you put them through a very intensive pre-season as Solskjaer has done and Solskjaer has made a, a great point of um, stating that he's done and he's allowed access to uh, the media to some of um, his backroom staff to discuss and, and give details of how they were doing far more high intensity work in their training sessions um, in this pre-season than they had done in the previous pre-season, um, which again is not entirely surprising because you're talking about a pre-season um, where there was no uh, World Cup or European Championship. 
so the majority of the players were available for a longer period of time and had come off, in Manchester United's case, quite a long holiday because, of course, the Premier League season finished early and Manchester United weren't involved in, in any of the, uh, the cup finals at the end of the season. So it was kind of fertile territory to put them through that um, demanding, physically demanding pre-season. But, you know, if that's what you choose to do, you are likely to have um, a fitter team at the start of the season. As I said on Monday, the, the question mark about that kind of regime is does it result in muscular injuries through the season because um, you overload the players um, early on in the campaign. And, and what we did see with Solskjaer in his first season in charge of Manchester United is an abnormally high rate of muscular injuries. And, and that has been attributed to him giving the team a mini pre-season after he took charge of them. So Solskjaer has emphasised this. He has essentially used it as an excuse um, when the results went very bad at the end of last season, that the, the team wasn't fit enough. He had repeatedly said, let me have a pre-season, let me see what the team's like after having a pre-season. Um, the test will be in the season as a whole. The, the pre-season's not... The test of a pre-season isn't how your team performs for the first month or the first two months. Test of the preseason is how your team performs over the course of the season because any logical preseason training schedule um, and regime should be designed to get the best results over the course of a season, not over um, the first few weeks of it. So, yeah, I think it would be um, premature and um, unusual, I think, to see in a club website this kind of stuff. But uh, but it has been. Well, that's the thing, Duncan. I would I, I would. Yeah, I want to contextualise this a little bit. Of course, it was the um, former UK Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, who coined the phrase, there are lies, damned lies and statistics. Um, as far as Manchester United are concerned, I think it's odd to see a piece like this appear on the club website, quoting these stats and then backing it up with one of their own staff reporters talking about, well, you know, all he did double sessions in pre-season. And I'm thinking... Everyone does double sessions in pre-season. You go down to Crawley Town, they do double sessions in pre-season. You go to Forest Green, they do double sessions in pre-season too. I mean, even part-time footballers do double sessions in pre-season. So this whole notion that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has somehow found you know, the magical wand to um, in some way uh, cure Manchester United's fitness problems from last season by doing double, seasons in, double sessions in pre-season seems odd and unusual and also just a bit silly to be quite honest and as you said the statistics that they have um, produced are against one team not the other 18 teams some of whom run much further than Manchester United in their first round of fixtures uh, last weekend so is it desperate is it propaganda um, I don't know you'd think winning 4-0 against Chelsea was enough without having to back it up with what seems to be quite a spurious you know, sense of, oh, well, this proves why Ole is brilliant and Manchester United are much better off this season. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think I'm kind of missing the, the very basic point here, which is that distance covered isn't that good a statistic in football. Uh, and it's certainly not a direct correlate of fitness. If you, you talk to football coaches about how important distance covered is. And they'll say it's far more important that the players are running at the right times to the right places 
than the, the, the total amount of, of running they engage in the game. Uh, the aim of football isn't to, to make your players run more than the opposition. The aim of football is to score more goals than the opposition. And that's about um, using physical effort in the right places at the right time. And if, if you look at distance cover statistics for the last World Cup, for example, you'll find France had one of the lowest average distance covered of all the teams in the World Cup. Yet they won it and were considered to have been a, a, an you know, exceptionally efficient and, and high quality team. So it's, um, I think people get a bit lost in these numbers sometimes without being able to see the, the bigger picture of, of what, they're, uh, what they're telling us about. Well, this, this was part of my point, Duncan. Um, in those, that same raft of statistics from Sunday's game, Chelsea had more shots on target, more shots on uh, taken. They had more possession. Um, they had more uh, duels won, etc., etc. It's almost like this desperate attempt to say, yeah, but hey, we ran more than they did. <laughs> and if you speak to coaches, and, spe and specifically speak to the data analysts at clubs and ask them the importance of distance covered, and they will say one of the reasons teams run more than their opposition is because they're making more mistakes on the ball. Because if you're using the ball properly and you're passing and not losing possession and there's less transitions of turnovers of a play and transitions, then you're not chasing back. So effectively, most of your running is done off the ball when you're chasing the game. So really, to use that as distance covered being a positive for a club is often actually the opposite. It's a negative. So it is, yeah, intriguing little bit of, um, you know, the mind games being played already with regards to uh, how a club operates. As we said, this is a piece put out on Manchester United's um, website, et cetera, et cetera. They chose only to talk about statistics of uh, how the players ran, et cetera, against one rival, not 18. So, yeah, um, one of the things that you guys might want to get in touch with us about, if you know how uh, many kilometres your team ran uh, last weekend or at any time, actually, in the last uh, week or so, depending if you're Premier League or indeed uh, Football League, let us know. And we can compare them to Manchester's uh, statistics and we can say whether or not uh, Manchester United really were, um, let's just say, uh, valid uh, or indeed honest in the way that they've presented this. Um, we get some stick, Duncan, because we are critical of everyone, but I think we're critical of everyone in an equal way. So um, I hope you guys uh, are taking that into account. And uh, speaking of critical and everyone, uh, we're going to move on now to the time of the week when most of you um, basically tune in and say, well, I wonder who's won the donkey this week, because that's where we're going. And um, I'm delighted to say that um, we've actually had a great suggestion um, for this week's donkeys. We've not had to do any work whatsoever, which Duncan and I love when it comes to the donkeys, because it's one of the most um, taxing points of our week, trying to come up with the, uh, the actual award and the nominations. But um, our very, very old and dear friend, uh, former presenter, who I'm sure um, some of you miss and more of you can't remember anyway, Johnny McFarlane, um, has come up with uh, his own um, Donkey Award uh, idea this week. So if, and in that case, we're going to call it in his honour. It's the Kaiser Duck Duncan Castles Award for the worst Sky Sports pundit. Now, we're not basing this on purely the start of the season, we should say. This is more a sort of ongoing stroke historical thing. And uh, 
for that reason, I will now open the, um, I'd say it's a golden envelope, but this week, for some reason, Duncan, it's kind of like brown coloured. There we go. Ah, and the nominations are, Duncan, for your perusal. Tony Gale, a man whose catchphrase is, it's not a foul for me. Um, I think anyone who actually has to talk about themselves in the first person, as Nietzsche said, it's the first sign of madness. Um, so Tony Gale, it's not a foul for me. Tim Sherwood, um, the man who claims responsibility and indeed the credit for discovering, giving birth to everything, Harry Kane, Ali, probably, if you get away with it, Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles, Ricky Villa as well, but, you know, that may be coming our way soon. And uh, the housewife's favourite, Jamie Redknapp. Duncan, I'll put it to you to award the Kaiser Duck Award for your very own worst Sky Sports pundit. Well, um, Tony Gale, I think he's got another catchphrase. It's, um, he went down too easily, and that, that's one you hear from a lot of the uh, the English um, pundits of, of his generation, and, um, and I, f- I do find that phrase um, very repetitive, very dull, and um, just not really understanding of, of, of modern football. So, strong candidate there. Jamie Redknapp, um, when do we get good insight from Jenny Redknapp? I don't know. I mean, I think I'll just refer to um, Josie Mourinho's description of his of his favourite um, Sky Sports pundit, who I'm looking forward to the two of them uh, meeting face to face in a Sky Studio this season. Which is, uh, um, you have your pundits with Jamie Redknapp as a brilliant football brain that can explain you everything. Um, and uh, I think just leave it there. Um, it's Jamie Redknapp, a brilliant football brain that can explain us everything. But for me, the winner has to be uh, Tactics Tim Sherwood. Um, if you uh, look for Sherwood on my Twitter feed, you'll get a, a large collection of his, um, of his uh, intriguing comments on football. Uh, never short of an opinion, never short of a very strongly expressed opinion. Um, repeatedly expresses the same opinion again and again and again. Um, but uh, the one I, I uh, the, the Tim Sherwood method I find most amusing is he, he has these um, quite often as coaches he doesn't like or individuals he doesn't like and, and when that when he's um, commentating on a game involving that coach he'll be asked what the, he expects the score to be before the game and it'll be I am I'm sure they'll win this game comfortably this is an easy football match for them um, in the full expectation that it's not going to be a comfortable win. They're not going to win it easily, so he can rip into them at, at half time and full time, um, having teed it up for himself that way. Um, and so, if you're watching Tim Sherwood, watch out for that one. And I, I think he gets the Kaiser Duck Award purely for that. I think you've called it perfectly there. I think the Tim Sherwood um, methodology is called the straw man argument. <laughs> where you set up the straw man, the, the actual argument, which doesn't exist, um, in order to prove yourself correct. And we know that Tim likes nothing more than to be proved, proven correct. However, as a pundit, he's kind of being a little bit kind of shortchanging his, the people paying him there, because if he's telling people things that he knows are not true, then surely people should reflect on that rather than the fact that he's saying he is right. Now, if you can get to the bottom of that, you can name next week's donkey. Um we very much uh, glad for your company on today's podcast. And uh, if you would like to give us something back in return, then please, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. And as you know, that will extend this wonderful community of people who 
We all get in touch. We all debate. And we love to hear your views, as you know. To continue on anything that you've heard in this particular podcast, please get in touch through our at transfer podcast handle uh, on Twitter or individually with Duncan at Duncan Castles and with me at Garbo SJ, which, of course, my name is Ian McGarry, not Garbo SJ. And that's one thing I'm going to keep secret from you for quite some time yet. We will be back on Friday with all your podcast needs being fulfilled. And as we always say, the transfer window may be closed in England, but it's open everywhere else. And personally, I'm looking forward to seeing Neymar signing for Dundee United. More on that on Friday. We'll see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening.